Greetings, this is podcast number 86 of Blast the Right. I'm Jack Clark from TheRationalRadical.com, www.TheRationalRadical.com. Today, we're going to discuss the proposed new Iraqi oil law, which gives a big boost to the point of view that we invaded Iraq to control its oil. Also, stick around for the closing comments, where I'll tell you about a Blast the Right live call-in show this Monday, March 26th. Let's get right into it. My sources are msnbc.com, op-ed pieces in the New York Times and the LA Times, wikipedia.com, the British newspaper The Independent, a column in the New York Daily News, commondreams.org, and the Interpress Service. Here are the delightful opening paragraphs of a column last month in the New York Daily News. Quote, Throughout nearly four years of the daily mayhem and carnage in Iraq, President Bush and his aides in the White House have scoffed at even the slightest suggestion that the U.S. military occupation has anything to do with oil. The President presumably would have us all believe that if Iraq had the world's second largest supply of bananas instead of petroleum, American troops would still be there. Now comes new evidence of the big prize in Iraq that rarely gets mentioned at White House briefings." Before we get into that new evidence, which is the proposed Iraqi oil law, some background. To start off with, you should know that there are two basic models about how a country's oil resources should be handled. In the first model, it's the multinational corporations that control the oil. Until the 1970s, in fact, most of the world's oil was, quote, in the hands of seven corporations based in the United States and Europe. Those seven have since merged into four, ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, and BP. They are among the world's largest and most powerful financial empires." Close quote. One of the favorite instruments to exercise that multinational corporate stranglehold is a severe form of contract called a Production Sharing Agreement, or PSA. Under a PSA, a country maintains technical legal ownership of its oil, but a hunk of the profits go to the multinationals. These PSAs are often long-term, locking in these unfair arrangements for decades and allow the multinationals a far greater degree of ownership and control than the other model. That other model takes the form of a country nationalizing its oil resources. A national oil company is set up and it controls the process of exploration, extraction, and sale. The foreign multinational oil companies are involved, but not in a controlling role. The country will, quote, hire international oil companies as contractors to provide specific services as needed for a limited duration and without giving the foreign company any direct interest in the oil produced, close quote. In a sea change from the period before the 1970s, the vast bulk of the world's oil is now subject to the second nationalization model. Oil company control in the form of PSAs is the case with only 12% of the world's oil. Most OPEC nations follow the nationalization model. Iraq's oil system has been under state control for the last three decades. Now I ask all you right-wingers to please answer this honestly. 
If you personally owned an oil well, which bottle would you choose? One that through a PSA gives a big share of the profits to a multinational corporation, which will also largely control, based on its own interests, the entire exploration, production, and sale process? Or a model where you hire, as you see fit, experts to do what needs to be done, and you control, based on your own needs, the exploration, production, and sale process. Obviously, you'd choose the latter. You'd want to be in control and keep the profits for yourself. Well, what makes sense for you makes sense for an entire nation, which is why 88% of the world's oil is now subject to that second state-run for the benefit of the nation model. Unfortunately, however, and here's where our podcast takes off, quote, Ever since they lost their exclusive control of the oil to the governments, the companies have been trying to get it back. Close quote. This is crucial. So to repeat, quote, Ever since they lost their exclusive control of the oil to the governments, the companies have been trying to get it back. Close quote. How? Some of you may be thinking to yourselves, well, sure, U.S. and other Western-based multinationals would love to control the oil, but would the U.S. ever go so far as to overthrow a government for that purpose? Yes, it would, since it already has done so. As the next bit of background, let's consider what happened to Iraq's neighbor, Iran, in the early 1950s. Until then, the British Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, today known as British Petroleum, BP, had essentially controlled the Iranian oil industry and taken the lion's share of the profits out of the country. Then in 1951, the Iranian parliament voted to nationalize its oil resources. Mohammad Mossadegh was the democratically elected prime minister of Iran. He enforced that law. And then the efforts began by the British and Americans to oust him. I'll note here that the British and Americans claimed that Mossadegh was getting too close to the Soviet Union. They always say something like that when another nation tries to achieve some measure of economic fairness and justice for itself. The CIA-orchestrated coup was named Operation Ajax. It was led by a CIA agent named Kermit Roosevelt Jr. Yes, he was a great-grandson of Teddy Roosevelt Jr. Quote, At the prompting of British intelligence, the CIA executed strategic bombings and political harassments of religious leaders, which became the foundation of Mossadegh's overthrow. To make a long story short, Mossadegh was ousted in 1953, and the puppet Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi was installed in office. The Shah quickly gave back control of the Iranian oil industry to the British Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. The Shah ruled in brutal, dictatorial fashion for 26 years until he was overthrown in the 1979 Iranian Revolution led by Ayatollah Khomeini. Again to all you right-wingers, that Mossadegh's overthrow was a CIA operation is beyond dispute. Indeed, in March 2000, then-Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, in a classic bit of understatement, said the following, quote, 
The Eisenhower administration believed its actions were justified for strategic reasons, but the coup was clearly a setback for Iran's political development, and it is easy to see now why many Iranians continue to resent this intervention by America. Close quote. Continue to resent this intervention by America? I would agree, Ms. Albright, that 26 years of brutal dictatorship might result in a bit of resentment against the country that was the cause of it. So now you know two oil industry models. One favors the multinational, the other favors the country, and the U.S. will overthrow governments to impose the first model and get back our oil. So what's this have to do with Iraq? Certainly, the usual pro forma denials were issued. For example, Here's Tony Blair on March 18, 2003, on the eve of the war, as he proposed a House of Commons motion to support the attack on Iraq. Quote, the oil revenues which people falsely claim that we want to seize should be put in a trust fund for the Iraqi people administered through the UN. The United Kingdom should seek a new Security Council resolution that would affirm the use of all oil revenues for the benefit of the Iraqi people. Close quote. I could probably find a dozen lying statements like that by leading U.S. and British warmongers. The cold, hard fact is Iraq's oil has been a long-time target. Let's go over some items starting in the late 1990s. 1998. Chief Executive of Chevron Kenneth Durr tells a San Francisco audience, quote, Iraq possesses huge reserves of oil and gas. Reserves I'd love Chevron to have access to. Close quote. 1999, Dick Cheney, then head of Halliburton, quote, By 2010, we'll need a further 50 million barrels a day. The Middle East, with two-thirds of the oil and the lowest cost, is still where the prize lies. Close quote. 2001, Vice President Cheney's Energy Task Force, formerly known as the National Energy Policy Development Group and including energy company executives wanted Middle Eastern countries, quote, to open up areas of their energy sectors to foreign investment, close quote. 2002 to 2003, the U.S. State Department's Oil and Energy Working Group says that Iraq, quote, should be open to international oil companies as quickly as possible after the war, close quote. It also said that those multinational-friendly, unfair-to-the-country PSAs should be the form of contract used. And finally, February 2003, just one month before the invasion, investigative reporter extraordinaire Greg Pallas comes into possession of a State Department document. I'm not sure if it's the same as the immediately preceding item I just mentioned. Doesn't really matter. Pallas writes, quote, when it comes to oil, the plan leaves nothing to chance, or to the Iraqis. Beginning on page 73, the secret drafters emphasized that Iraq would have to, quote, privatize, close quote, i.e. sell off its, quote, oil and supporting industries, close quote. When you see an animal salivating over food, you can safely assume eating that food is on its mind. Okay, the Iraq war begins. There's an orgy of looting in the capital, Baghdad. 
Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld shrugs it off. Why not? What he was really concerned about was protected. Quote, the oil ministry alone of all the seats of power in the Iraqi capital was under American guard. Close quote. Yet even four months into the war, Colin Powell, then Secretary of State, still insisted, quote, We have not taken one drop of Iraqi oil for U.S. purposes or for coalition purposes. Quite the contrary. It cost a great deal of money to prosecute this war. But the oil of the Iraqi people belongs to the Iraqi people. It is their wealth. It will be used for their benefit. So we did not do it for oil. Close quote. Yeah, about as credible as your UN presentation, colon. As the U.S. set up its governing structure in Iraq, the coalition's intent became clearer and clearer, and the grabbing of Iraq's oil moved a little closer. Remember Podcast 59, where we discussed the Bremer Orders? These were laws enacted by fiat, by decree of Coalition Provisional Authority head Paul Bremer when he was running Iraq for the Bush administration. They were designed to radically restructure the Iraqi economy along right-wing economic lines. Privatize everything, slash taxes, shrink government, put the country up for sale. The goal was to open up Iraq to multinational corporate exploitation. Most germane here, Bremer Order Number 39 removed long-standing Iraqi restrictions on foreign ownership. Now, except in the natural resource sector, Multinationals could own 100% of an enterprise, could take 100% of the profits they made out of the country, and they would not be taxed at all. No reinvestment in Iraq was required. There was no requirement that Iraqis be hired. Except in the natural resource sector. So oil was still treated as sacrosanct. But the overall goal for the Iraqi economy was clear. And anyone who understood the Bushians knew that their salivating was intensifying. I wondered back then at the time of Podcast 59 how long it would take for the oil to be subject to the same right-wing agenda. Not long. The penultimate step was the much-touted, bipartisan-endorsed Iraq Study Group report of December 2006. It unabashedly set forth the corporate agenda for Iraq's oil wealth. Quote, While the Bush administration, the media, and nearly all the Democrats still refused to explain the war in Iraq in terms of oil, the ever-pragmatic members of the Iraq study group share no such reticence. Page 1, Chapter 1 of the Iraq study group report lays out Iraq's importance to its region, the U.S., and the world with this reminder. Quote, it has the world's second largest known oil reserves, close quote. It states in plain language that the U.S. government should use every tool at its disposal to ensure that American oil interests and those of its corporations are met. Recommendation number 63 calls on the U.S. to, quote, assist Iraqi leaders to reorganize the national oil industry as a commercial enterprise, close quote, and to, quote, encourage investment in Iraq's oil sector by the international community and by international energy companies, close quote. 
This recommendation would turn Iraq's nationalized oil industry into a commercial entity that could be partly or fully privatized by foreign firms. Close quote. Let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll go over Iraq's new proposed oil law, a multinational energy company's dream come true, Dick Cheney's dream come true. Your one-minute voting report. We drop down to number eight on the Podcast Alley Top Ten. I think we can hold that position until the end of the month. It would be nice to get back to number seven or number six. That would spread the progressive word even more. We'll need 50 to 100 new voters this month to do that. Can you guys produce that for me? As always, here's my offer you can't refuse, or so I hope. You get two hours a month of a podcast you like to listen to, and all I ask in return is 10 seconds of your time once a month to vote for Blast the Right at Podcast Alley. You can vote from the one-click link on the podcast homepage. Two hours for 10 seconds. You could even go vote right now if you want to. Deal? Cool. Remember this key passage from before the break? Quote, Ever since they lost their exclusive control of the oil to the governments, the companies have been trying to get it back. Close quote. Here's a brief summary of the proposed Iraqi oil law. Quote, a new law set to go before the Iraqi parliament this month would, if passed, go a long way toward helping the oil companies achieve their goal. The law would transform Iraq's oil industry from a nationalized model closed to American oil companies except for limited, although highly lucrative, marketing contracts into a commercial industry, all but privatized, that is fully open to all international oil companies. It does so to the great detriment of Iraq's economy, democracy, and sovereignty. It's a radical departure not only from Iraq's existing structure, but from how oil is managed in most of the world today. Close quote. Now for some of the gory details. The law provides for those terrible production sharing agreements, PSAs, where the multinationals get a hunk of the profits and have substantial control over the process. The Iraqis would be locked into these one-sided agreements for 15 to 35 years. Iraq has 80 known oil fields. The Iraq National Oil Company would retain exclusive control of just 17 of them. The rest, plus all fields as yet undiscovered, all fields yet undiscovered, are thrown open to foreign control. The law goes further than even the worst doomsayers predicted. Way beyond prior PSAs, quote, Amazingly, executives from those companies would actually be given seats on a new Federal Oil and Gas Council that would control all of Iraq's reserves. In other words, Chevron, ExxonMobil, British Petroleum, and the other Western oil giants could end up on the board of directors of the Iraqi Federal Oil and Gas Council, while Iraq's own national oil company would become just another competitor. Close quote. 
Yes, that's right, quote, the government-owned Iraqi National Oil Company will not get any preference over foreign companies, close quote. It gets even worse. The foreign multinationals will be able, essentially, to run wild in Iraq. They are not required to invest their earnings in Iraq, take Iraqi companies as partners, hire any Iraqi workers, or share technology. Shades of the Bremer orders. And, under the proposed oil law, if there's a dispute, these foreign multinationals will not be subject to Iraqi law, will not come under the jurisdiction of that nation's courts. If it sounds like the law was written not by the Iraqis, but by the Bushians, well, it essentially was. Passage of this law has openly been a high priority of the Bush administration. Quote, Since the invasion of Iraq, the Bush administration has been aggressive in shepherding the oil law toward passage. It is one of the president's benchmarks for the government of Prime Minister Maliki, a fact that Mr. Bush, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, General William Casey, Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad, and other administration officials are publicly emphasizing with increasing urgency. Close quote. The process of writing the law has been dominated by the United States. Over a year ago, the consultancy firm Bearing Point was hired by the Bush administration to, quote, advise the Iraqi oil ministry on drafting and passing a new national oil law, close quote. After the law was drafted, it was reviewed by international oil companies, the U.S. and British governments, and the International Monetary Fund. Only then was the Iraqi parliament allowed to see it. Iraqi unions complained that they and other civil groups were excluded from the drafting process. I ask you, did you know anything about this from reading, listening to, or watching our corporate-owned media? Of course not. Virtually all the coverage has focused on how the Iraqi oil revenues would be divided among the Shiite Sunnis and Kurds, which was, of course, what the Bush administration was emphasizing as well. Quote, the administration has highlighted the law's revenue-sharing plan under which the central government would distribute oil revenues throughout the nation on a per capita basis. But the benefits of this excellent proposal are radically undercut by the law's many other provisions. These allow much, if not most, of Iraq's oil revenues to flow out of the country and into the pockets of international oil companies. Close quote. This mass media deception, or more accurately, omission here, is to me reminiscent of its parroting of the Bush administration's WMD hyperbole in the run-up to the war, without barely mentioning all the respected experts who were saying the Bush administration's claims were overblown, if not downright false. Our corporate-owned media are not telling the American public the truth about the impending de facto corporate seizure of Iraq's oil. But not everyone has been silent about this planned grand-scale theft. Opposition among progressive Western observers has been swift. Platform is a British group that monitors the oil industry from a human rights and environmental perspective. Iwad Jazawiz, a researcher there, said, quote, It hasn't been put together in any kind of democratic process. 
It's been put through a war and occupation which in itself is a grotesquely undemocratic process. There's no other country in the Middle East with the kind of oil reserves that Iraq has that would consider signing a production-sharing agreement. It's a form of privatization, and that's why those countries haven't signed these, because it's not in their interests. Close quote. As word of the proposed law gets around in Iraq, strong internal opposition there is also becoming apparent. Quote, Critics, including Iraqi oil professionals, engineers, and technicians in the unions, are instead advocating for technical service contracts, meaning a company would come in and offer services, such as building a refinery, laying a pipeline, or offering consultancy services, get their fees, and then leave. Close quote. As Jazowiz puts it, quote, it is a much more equitable relationship because the control of production and development of oil will stay with the Iraqi state. Close quote. Iraq has five trade union federations, which represent hundreds of thousands of workers. The union sent a letter to the Iraqi president, Jalal Talbani, condemning the law. Quote, Production-sharing agreements are a relic of the 1960s. They will re-imprison the Iraqi economy and impinge on Iraq's sovereignty since they only preserve the interests of foreign companies. We warn against falling into this trap. Close quote. Ah, the 60s. How ironic. The 60s, the great bugaboo of the right. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Certainly that aspect of the 60s the right wants nothing of. But that other aspect of the 60s, PSAs that allow multinational oil companies to rape oil-rich countries, that aspect of the 60s is fine. Iraqi labor leaders also released a statement with even stronger language, quote, The Iraqi people refuse to allow the future of their oil to be decided behind closed doors. The occupier seeks and wishes to secure energy resources at a time when the Iraqi people are still under conditions of occupation. Close quote. And what will the Iraqi people think of this oil grab? The union leaders predict it will cause an uproar. Platform's Jazowiz, quote, said the law can be regarded as the economic goal of the war and occupation and that, quote, it will be viewed by most Iraqis as not just illegitimate, but a war crime, close quote. We overthrew Iran's government in 1953 to get Iranian oil back into multinational hands. And a half century later, in 2003, we overthrew Iraq's government to get Iraqi oil back into multinational hands. And, I would add, to establish permanent military bases in Iraq. Just as our actions in Iran caused massive resentment there and led to a takeover of that country a quarter century later by hardline Islamic radicals, our actions in effectively grabbing Iraq's oil will similarly produce results we won't like, and probably in far less time. The Iraqi people aren't stupid. According to a recent ABC News poll conducted with USA Today and others, 51% of the Iraqi people now support violence against U.S. forces. Wait until the Iraqi people hear about our oil grab. Many of the remaining 49% will join in that kill-the-American sentiment. Before we close, let's briefly expand the frame. Remember All-Important Podcast 56? 
There I set out my analysis of the four ways the Western world has economically exploited the third world. Three of them are the imposition of so-called structural adjustment programs which are essentially right-wing economics gone wild, hooking third world nations on the debt treadmill, and sweetheart deals between corrupt third world governments and multinationals for natural resource extraction. Well, in Iraq, the Bremer orders referred to earlier were essentially a structural adjustment program. Iraq is also being reintroduced to IMF World Bank type loans and the debt treadmill that will result. And today we discuss the sweetheart deals angle, the new Iraqi oil law. The new Iraqi oil law isn't really new in that sense. It's just a continuation of that seemingly eternal process of exploitation by the West of the rest of the world. At the very same time that nations like Venezuela and Bolivia are nationalizing their oil and gas industries so that the profits from the wealth of their nations will be used for the benefit of the citizens of those nations, the U.S. and Iraq is going the reverse route ramming through a law to make sure that Iraqi oil wealth benefits multinationals not the Iraqi people. Now you can see even more clearly why the Bush administration is so apoplectic about Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and Evo Morales in Bolivia. What if the Iraqi people, to the extent they're not aware of what's going on already, look across the ocean and observe events in Venezuela and Bolivia? The Iraqi people would have further reinforcement to their natural inclination that their oil reserves should be used for their benefit, not to further enrich ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, and BP. Of course, the problem is, unlike Venezuela and Bolivia, there are 140,000 plus American troops in Iraq there to enforce any bogus laws the puppet Iraqi government enacts in defiance of the wishes of the Iraqi people. Indeed, keen analysts have pointed out that a major benefit of the new oil law by transferring an ownership interest in Iraqi oil to the multinationals is that it will, quote, give a further pretext to continue the U.S. occupation on the grounds that those companies will need protection, close quote. And even worse, it's not going to stop with Iraq and its oil. According to journalist Seymour Hirsch, who broke the story of the Milai massacre, quote, the U.S. military already has teams inside Iran picking targets and working to facilitate political unrest. It is precisely this same type of tactic by the U.S. and the U.K. used more than a half century ago. Close quote. Yes, a half century ago, when we overthrew the Iranian government to get back control of its oil. The screaming by the right wing about Iranian nukes is the pretext. Iran's oil is the prize they're salivating over. Just like the prize in Iraq was its oil. The new Iraqi oil law reinforces our worst fears, both for Iraq and for what's in store for Iran. Not only must we progressives end the Iraq war, but we must also stop the attack on Iran. The salivating beast must not be allowed to feed any more. 
Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right and vote for Blast the Right at podcastalley.com. There's a one-click link to do each of those on the podcast homepage. You get to the podcast homepage by typing in Blast the Right in Google, and I'm the first result. A special shout-out to all you Live 365 and Red Dragon 365 listeners. Great to have you on board. Consider coming over to the podcast homepage and subscribing. Here's the story on the Blast the Right Live call-in show pilot version. I'm not sure what format I'm going to use for these live call-in shows, hence the pilot version designation. We'll experiment in real time. I'm also not sure yet which technology I'm going to employ for the call-ins, so I may just try them all out one after another. This week we'll do it on TalkShoe.com. T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com. Pilot show number one will be this Monday night, March 26th, 9 to 9.30 p.m., California time, where TalkCast number 21542, 21542. The telephone number is 724-444-7444. That's 724-444-7444. These numbers are on my podcast homepage. TalkShoe does insert ads. How will it work? If you want to listen only, you can do so from the TalkShoe.com website. To call in and speak, either from your computer or any landline or cell phone, you need to register for free on TalkShoe.com and get a PIN number. You can also listen over your phone, provided you have that PIN number. In the near future, you won't need to perhaps, but right now you do. Hope I'll get a chance to speak to a whole bunch of you on Monday night, including some friendly local right-wingers. A request for volunteers. Does anyone have the equipment and time to transcribe some short 3-10 to minute clips? Please drop me a line. Music credits. The break music was The Schnee Speaks by KG House combined with the Blasterite alternate theme by Nye's Music and Not The One Blues by Burnshee Thornside. We'll close with a little bit of Catapult to Propaganda, also by Nye's Music. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Keep all that great email coming in. My address is rational at adelphia.net. You can also call in and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. If you prefer, you can leave your comment on Skype. My name there is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. In my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again to kind of catapult the propaganda. Catapult of propaganda. Catapult of propaganda. Chief Weapons Inspector Charles Dolphers now issued a comprehensive report that confirms the earlier conclusion of David Kay that Iraq did not have the weapons that our intelligence believed were there. Um, it turned out that not found any stockpiles. I think it's unlikely that we will find any stockpiles.
I don't know anybody in any government or any intelligence agency who suggested that the Iraqis had uh, nuclear weapons. That's, that's fact number one. What has not stood the test of time was the judgment we made that there were stockpiles of chemical and biological.